Hello and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. Come back every second Monday to hear new episodes and subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you like to get your podcasts in order to automatically receive new episodes whenever I release them. For more info and detailed show notes, you can go to soundofthemoment.com. And if you'd like to support me and the show, there's a few ways to do that. First of all, uh, please help me spread the word by either telling a friend or by leaving favorable reviews and ratings in uh, iTunes. That does help the algorithms to make the show more visible to people. And if you would like to help me out uh, via my Patreon campaign, you can do that at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment and you can make donations over there on a monthly basis that can be as low as one dollar and as high as you feel like so if you uh if you enjoy the show and you feel like supporting me and helping me to keep it running and and pay for all the costs that are involved in running a show like this one then uh please consider going to patreon.com slash sound of the moment you can follow me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can also like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook. And if you want to contact me directly, you can do that via email, pat at soundofthemoment.com. This is episode number 23 for the 27th of August, 2018. My guest is the drummer Kevin Vanden Elzen. Before you hear our conversation, I'll play you some of his music. This is a live recording of Kevin's Leho group at the BIM house. It dates back to October 2017. The tune is called Take It Day by Day. It was written by Kevin and it features Ben Fachelder on alto sax, Mike Lebrun on tenor, Adam Hirsch on piano, Max Krauss on bass, and Kevin Van Elsen himself on the drums. Thank you. 
That was music from uh, my guest today, Kevin Van Elzen, a drummer and band leader and uh, all of that stuff. Uh, Kevin, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for the invite. I always like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit, tell people a bit about who you are and what you do and all of that. Right. Well, uh, I'm Kevin van der Elze. I'm a drummer band leader. Uh, I also like to call myself an educator because uh, I teach also a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I uh, uh, a couple of, or three years ago, I basically moved uh, to LA after living in Amsterdam for five years. I did my bachelor's there at the conservatorium yeah. and then took a year off. Uh, to play and then I got the opportunity to go to LA and study there with Peter Erskine at the Thornton School of Music. Mm-hmm. I graduated there in May 2017 and uh, since then I've been working mainly in LA and uh, I'm planning to keep it that way. Yeah. So Cool. Um, yeah, I guess uh, there's all kinds of things that we could discuss but I guess the most obvious thing is is this idea of LA. Like what was it like? I mean, I, 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 you went there to study, right? Like you went to USC, but yeah. what was it specifically about LA that attracted you? It seems like maybe it's becoming more common for people to consider LA as a destination to go to, but it's always just traditionally been you go to New York or you go to whatever the capital city is of the country that you live in. Yeah. Um, but New York is kind of the mecca of where jazz uh, people tend to go. Yeah. Um, was that not something that was uh, in your mind, like going to New York, or is it like what was it about LA that attracted you? Uh, the decision to go to LA was mainly because of so when I w- so when I was still studying at uh, at Amsterdam, uh, I had a lesson once with Martin Vink, and he just basically asked me like who is your favorite drummer that you want to have lessons with? Mm-hmm. And uh, that was Jeff Hamilton at first. And then he asked me the question, uh, well, do you need to be in New York or do you need to be in LA to have lessons with Jeff? Yeah. So that was a very, very simple <laughs> answer. Yeah. Um, so, But I was, I was doubting to go to Manhattan School to study with Riley or to go to LA because I knew that uh, Peter Erskine was already uh, teaching at USC, Uh, but uh, mainly because of Jeff Hamilton and John Clayton. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did some stuff for me, uh, which made me decide really to go to LA and to study with with Peter and a little bit with Jeff. Um, Basically, uh, Jeff gave me an opportunity to play with the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra in the sound in their soundcheck at the Concertgebouw. Okay, and that was that was such a mind blowing and eye opening experience for me. Like this is the shit that I want to hear. This is the shit yeah. that I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I need to get myself over to LA. Not particularly the city was something that attracted me at first. Now mm. I've. Uh, grown to to love the city. It's actually like sort of like a love hate relationship because there are a lot <laughs> of good things about LA, but LA has also a, a lot of bad things. Yeah, sure. So yeah, that's uh, basically why I made my decision to go to LA. Um, I, I feel like yeah, we sh- we should maybe come back to to LA after a small tangent, but um, it seems like big band music is a huge theme. Um, also in what you just discussed yeah. and it has been a theme in, in your work in general. Yeah. Um, you are slash were, I guess you still are like leader of the, uh, 
Dutch concert big band yeah. um, and you founded it and uh, you're also working with and leading big bands over in LA nowadays. Yeah. Um, what is it about the big band that appeals to you so much? It's, it seems like, I guess, drummers, you, you've got two types of drummers. You've got the drummers that love big bands and the drummers that hate big bands. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. Where did that love come from? Uh, that, that started already a long time ago because I think I heard my real first big band record when I was eight. And uh, yeah, that never, that uh, it always stuck with me. That kind of, I always was sort of intrigued by large ensembles. Like mm -hmm. I was listening to, uh, to uh, like orchestras and I loved to be around like brass bands when I was like even younger, when I was like five or six. Yeah. And then uh, my dad brought a uh, record with him that was a big band and that always, stuck with me and I'm I'm just really I'm just really intrigued that well the first feeling that I had was just the majestic uh sound that a band like that can yeah. produce you know like not loud but mm -hmm. just being like you know the full sound and yeah. you know when uh, when you listen to great uh, composers and arrangers like the voicings that they use like the, uh, if they use it correctly, you can get like such a, a majestic sound out of that ensemble. Mm -hmm. So that was basically the um, uh, the first like the first real impression, the first reason why I like that kind of music. And um, I like drumming wise, I don't consider myself really like as a extrovert soloist. Mm -hmm. I like to work with something like, you know, I work, I, I like to work with something tangible and, you know, like to have a piece of paper in front of me and to really bring an arrangement to life with a big band, but to really try to give my own stamp to it is something nowadays, uh, really something that I, that I, that I get a kick out of. And that's really like a, a good challenge uh, yeah. for me. Yeah. So that's, yeah, those are like basically the two main reasons why I really like that, uh, that kind of music. Yeah. But so, um, there's liking that kind of music and then there's starting your own big band. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like uh, when you're in school, like it's easy to like big bands because there's like 15 big bands in the conservatory or whatever yeah, that you right. can play in and you're probably going to end up subbing in them. And if people find out that you like playing in them, then you're going to have all the big bands work that yeah. you ever want. And you make zero money. And you make zero money because <laughs> you're in school and that's just how it goes. Yeah. And it's interesting because your learning skills that later on are, well, in your case are applicable, but to a lot of people are kind of like not, you're going to be in big bands as long as you're in school. And then after yeah. that, it might never happen again. Yeah. Um, how did you, like, how did you make the decision to actually found your own big band? And like, what was the process like? Um, I founded the big band because I was talking also with uh, my former teacher back then uh, with uh, Lukas van Merwijk. And uh, I was talking about him like, hey, I'm, searching for a big band uh, uh, and uh, like I'm searching for a big band to play with, uh, but there aren't any available because all of the drum seats are taken yeah. uh, bands out of school because mm -hmm. I was playing like, you know, a pretty decent amount in the bands of uh, uh, in school. Yeah. Um, and uh, Lucas has his own uh, big band and he said like, well, if you want to play big band, why don't you put one together yourself? Yeah. And I was like, 
no, why in <laughs> God's name should I do that? And then um, I talked about uh, I, I talked about the idea uh, with uh, Guidon Guidon Nunez Vos, uh, yeah. trumpet player, mm-hmm. and he said like, well, maybe it's not such a bad idea to to do it. So I talked with him about it, and I talked with uh, Albert Beltman about it, and Albert uh, completely said to me like, you're completely nuts if you're going to do that. <laughs> um, but that obviously didn't really stop me. So um, I talked with a bunch of people at first and uh, I explained them the idea like, hey, there's at the moment not really like a, a young big band with young professionals around. So would you guys be interested? So I contacted a, a bunch of people and then also Guidon uh, invited a bunch of people that he knew that I did not know you know, like what people are right for the right position. Like, yeah. I don't know somebody for third trombone. Do you know somebody? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so uh, uh, slowly but gradually the group became, you know, became more complete and uh, the people who are already asked, uh, asked their friends. So it was basically like a, a big group yeah. of people that knew each other already. You sort of crowdsourced uh, an ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. You can't say that basically. <laughs> I, I like that. And uh, uh, yeah, and then the first rehearsal, if I remember correctly, was like in somewhere in April of 2013. And I had like three pieces <laughs> that <laughs> I wanted to play. And yeah, everything, you know, it, it just went from there. And then uh, Sigrid, Sigrid Pans, heard about, uh, about this idea. And she talked with Ruud van Dijk. And then Ruud van Dijk came to me and he basically said like, look, you basically have an alumni band here. So if you need support from the school, then just tell me what you need. So yeah, Ruud van Dijk, previously head of the jazz department. Yeah, I think people yeah. may not be aware of that, but yeah, yeah, exactly. And a uh, uh, former uh, cord or project coordinator, uh, Sigrid, yeah, who was exactly. amazing. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, they really were very supportive of the idea and of the the band. So through that, we got to make a, a CD, and we had like all of a sudden we had like six gigs lined up in mm-hmm. half a year that were like uh, not not totally organized by the conservatory, but we were being put in the right direction because of Ruud van Dijk and, and Sigrid yeah. basically. So, you know, like all of a sudden we're playing six times in six months, yeah. uh, which is amazing. And yeah. all of the gigs, uh, most, yeah, except for one gig that we did, which was a benefit concert, all of the gigs were like, pretty decently paid. So I was like, wow, we got ourselves like a flying start. So we should, you know, we should continue with this. And now the band still uh, works and exists because we played at the Gracht Festival last week, Thursday. And um, yeah, and the band is still going strong. We're not playing as much this year as we have done in previous years because of, you know, several circumstances but um yeah but the band is still going strong to my big surprise as well yeah yeah and so you um the record that you made initially is like based around uh celebrating dutch composers is that correct yeah yeah um what how did you go about selecting that repertoire what was it about like i think i read somewhere like that you that it was kind of important to you to shine a light on certain like composers that don't necessarily get the attention that they might deserve. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the reason. I also think that it's very important to show that kind of repertoire to a young audience, and that's still uh, a, a 
pretty big uh, standpoint for me. Um, but uh, also because of the fact that that music was never played anymore. Like uh, in the school big bands uh, with Eric van Leer, we would play like, you know, a piece from Roponk or uh, just some ob- obscure a piece from somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, also a couple of other teachers gave me like some records of big bands of you know, like uh, uh, the big bands that were comprised of American and European and uh, uh, and, and Dutch musicians. Um, but all of the stuff was written by Dutch composers and all of that stuff was just super killing. Well, not all of the stuff, but uh, 90% of the stuff was like super killing. And I really digged it. And uh, I was like, this should be played. This kind of music should be played. And mm. I heard also that a lot of music was lying around in like the music library of the Metropole. Um, yeah. And, you know, like it's just collecting dust over there. So mm-hmm. by coincidence, I got in touch with like some librarians who work uh, over there and they said like, here, here's some music. Yeah. So slowly but gradually, I was uh, uh, getting a repertoire together with like stuff that nobody plays mm-hmm. anymore, which I think is, you know, like... Uh, the big band at the moment is not like a big band with um, somebody who really writes for the band. You can consider the band basically as a repertoire band, but it's a repertoire that nobody else in Holland has or nobody is playing anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's basically um, the, the way how that went. And it's, also just of the love for that music. And mm-hmm. I also talked about it with the people in the band and they said like, dude, this is super cool music. So yeah. we should we should play it. And I, I take it that that has evolved uh, over the years away from that CD and into like uh, other kinds of repertoire and stuff. Like yeah. you you mentioned the gig last week, you guys were playing stuff from, from more LA based composers, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, is that a similar process? You're sort of like searching for gems that have yeah. been forgotten and left by the wayside yeah well yeah kind of because um that music is not really forgotten because that music is being played pretty regularly in uh in la Mm -hmm. um because most of the uh, the the stuff that we played last week uh are from composers who are actually still live okay and most of the composers that are being Highlighted in the uh, in the Dutch repertoire are already deceased. Yeah. Um, so I th- I would say that half of them are uh, have passed away already. Mm-hmm. Um, but I that that reason is basically why we played uh, the, for the LA project was that I've uh, collected like a repertoire over the course of the three years that I was living in in LA, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought like it would be super cool to give like. Um, uh, an inside scoop into what is what has happened in LA and what is happening right now in LA on in in that area of you know like big band uh, yeah. music because um, that that music at least over here is not being played very often like yeah. I've I've I maybe I maybe can say that I maybe played like a Bill Holman chart in the school big band twice maybe in my in my five years of, yeah, of yeah. being at the conservatory. And Bill Holman is one of the greatest composers and arrangers yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of the 21st century, basically. So the man is a genius. And 
you know, like I, I thought like, well, it, it, it's, uh, it's the right time to bring a repertoire like that and show it to a Dutch audience. Yeah. And I guess it's also that like the bands out there typically don't make out, make it out to Europe that no, often, right? Like not anymore. If, if you, yeah. I guess it used to be the case, but yeah. like it's, it's such a crazy costly thing to try to run a big band yeah. um, on a local level. Like, yeah. You know, people tend to, like, I feel like the big band model is usually like, get yourself a residency in a venue, yeah. play there once a month, twice a month or whatever. Yeah. Um, that, that's typically how it works. Yeah. Um, and everybody agrees that they're going to make 50 bucks and, and, and be satisfied with the fact that they are, like participating in the good cause of big band music yeah. somehow. Yeah. Um, but so is that like you, so you talk about like the idea of playing repertoire stuff and things like, but is, is writing for and arranging for big band, not something that like particularly um, interests you personally? Like, is it not something that you've done or that you do or that you would like to do more of? Yeah. Uh, well, definitely I would like to do that, uh, to do that more. Um, I wouldn't know exactly when I would be able to find a time for that because uh, there are like also other projects uh, that are uh, that are running right now where I'm like really like a, a side man and you know mm -hmm. like I have to prepare music for those projects. Um, but yeah, uh, to, to, uh, I I did um, because I was in the composing. A uh, uh, composing class of uh, of Bob Mincer yeah. at USC. You have to like make a big band chart at the end of the semester and record it with the big band. So I did, uh, and um, I really need to, you know, like I really need to research a lot more. Like if I'm going to be uh, w willing and able to put something together to really make something of my own, um, which I think is going to happen. But I think it's going to take a couple of years before yeah. I'm just going to put something out there. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's obviously super intimidating too when you're used to like performing these charts by all these masters. Yeah. Like, it's not like you just, and now in the middle of this set of like masterpieces, I'm going to drop like <laughs> a thing that I'm not 100% like ready <laughs> yeah. to show. Like, exactly. I, mean, it, it, I guess, yeah, in the long run, it's, it's a thing that, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, the, I, I guess maybe maybe we should go back to the to the actual like LA thing and stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in uh, what the scene is like there now and what the music is like there now. I feel like you know, obviously, we have this image of LA um, that dates back to like the 50s of like the idea of West Coast versus yeah. East Coast music yeah. and all of that stuff. Uh, do you feel like that is still a reality given like the, the the global nature of the way music functions now? Do you feel like it's still aesthetically apart from the rest of of the world in that in that sense? Um not not as um uh, it's it's not as black and white anymore as it used to be like from what I've heard from American uh, musicians is that there was really like a difference between New York and LA yeah. and, you know, like people who were living in New York and some people who are still living in New York, they don't like LA at all. Like, yeah, sure. They have nothing, they don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> um, but if you look over the course of, of history, like uh, uh, Charlie Parker was in LA for uh, a couple of years. Miles was in LA for a couple of years. Dizzy uh, was also in LA for a couple of years. So there was always, I think, like a little bit of 
interaction between East Coast and West Coast. Yeah. Um, that has definitely changed a lot because um, when I came to, when I arrived in LA, I think I arrived really at the uh, the right time because it was really starting to, the music scene was starting to really grow again. Like people who are, uh, really great musicians decide to stay in LA and not go to the East Coast. And mm -hmm. that was happening quite a lot. And um, also people who are from the East Coast decided to go back to LA or to start, uh, or to start living in LA. Yeah, so yeah. in the past year or so, um, Gerald Clayton has moved back to LA. Yeah. Uh, Dave Binney is in LA now. Yeah, yeah. Justin Brown is in LA. Um, I know that Philip Dizak is in between uh, Jonathan Pinson, Gilad's drummer. Yeah, he's yeah. in between. He he's a lot in LA, but also a lot in the East Coast. So the differences are slowly but gradually, like you know, decaying. Yeah. And um, people from New York also start love. They they really love to play in LA because the club. Uh, scene is really growing over there like in the last 10 years 10 10 clubs have closed unfortunately yeah but now there is sort of like an uprise again of you know like little clubs that have not jazz on a daily basis but on a weekly basis for sure mm -hmm. that you can you know you can just find dave binney playing in a in a in a small club and he makes money off of it, but the club the club maybe asks like maybe a five or ten dollar cover yeah, yeah, yeah. with no minimum. So really, the club scene is really uh, is really booming, and also the level of musicians that is uh, that is coming from LA um, and uh, who are deciding to staying in LA is also re has really increased. Yeah. You know, like the people from. Knower and the people from Moonchild and you know the people uh, behind Kamasi Washington, sure, like yeah. now they're all the big cats. Yeah. Uh, but they all have like you know a uh, a background in jazz for sure. And yeah. when they come back in LA, they also still play jazz. Yeah. yeah of course. Um, so yeah, I think and th and this is just you know growing and growing. And there are like I know for sure that there are a couple of uh, jazz guys over there now, uh, who people in Europe will know in a couple of years, and yeah. that they're based in LA. Like yeah. for example, a friend of mine, Mike Garola, he's a really, really killing bass player, really in the tradition of Ray Brown, and he has been in LA for his entire life. And then all of a sudden, uh, he gets in touch with Benny Green, and Benny Green uh, asks him to go on a three-week tour uh, with with him to China, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the 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 boundaries between New York and LA are definitely fading. Yeah. I have the impression. Do you feel like it's also the like the LA scene is a bit less saturated with musicians than the New York scene is? Like, it, it, it's possible that there's just m more opportunity. Like you say, if like there's more of a club scene that's starting to exist. And at the same time, there's not the like 300,000 people that are all trying to get the same gig. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, definitely the, the, the market in LA is definitely not oversaturated at the moment. Like I'm, I'm, I've been living there for three years. I just graduated a year ago and I make a decent leave, a living yeah. uh, from playing music 
yeah. there on a daily basis. And I think also the the pay is also still uh, slightly better yeah. than uh, than in New York. Like uh, on a, I think in New York, if I'm not really like over exaggerating, like if you're a starting musician, then you're doing maybe like two or three gigs, and then you're maybe lucky to make a hundred bucks, maybe on a night. Yeah. yeah. And I go in, I go in if I play like. Well, for example, I did like a, a Sunday uh, brunch gig, and you do like three sets. You get uh, you get drinks, you get food, and you get a hundred bucks. So it's you know, which is still objectively speaking, compared to like the kinds of like pay that we might be used to in Europe, that's still kind of low. Yeah, but um, that makes sense to me. It's also just the idea of competition and stuff. Yeah, uh, I guess the other, and maybe this is like the obvious LA question, but like, do you feel like the proximity of like Hollywood and what is basically like the heart of the like mainstream entertainment industry in mm -hmm. the US and basically the world, uh, given the fact that that is all happening there. Yeah. Um, do you feel like that has an influence specifically on the jazz and improvised music scene? Like uh, are there people that are there for that reason and they're coming out of that? Is there opportunities? I can imagine, I don't know if it's still the case, but I can imagine that it used to be the case that there was a lot of big bands out there yeah. simply because TV shows would have... Yeah, need for scores and films would have need for scores and stuff. Yeah. And maybe that's less the case now, but is there still a scene for that? Like, is that still happening? Yeah, yeah. I um, uh, it still it still happens. I'm not exactly sure how often it happens, but I've been I've been uh, uh, I've I visited Capitol Records twice with mm -hmm. uh, uh, with Peter, and um. The first the the first session that I saw with Peter was with a big band, and they were recording arrangements from Tom Kubis, who made arrangement for Disneyland Tokyo for like yeah. a, a a live show. Yeah, okay. Um, and the second session that I, I went uh, that I visited with Peter was also a big band session, and that was a Christmas album together with a excuse me for saying this, but with a very poor country and Western singer. Okay. Um, and, but the music was completely killing. Yeah. So there is, the, for all different kind of reasons, they're still using big bands for for like commercials or like yeah, movies sure. or whatever. Um, there, I wouldn't say that there's like really like a mixture between those musicians and and uh, people who are really like in the creative scene, yeah. um, because that area of music, um, it's very hard to get into that scene, like the 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 the, the movie scene, yeah, and, like the recording studio, jingles, because uh, yeah. it's it's the same guys who've been doing that for the past forty years. Yeah, sure. Um, so like you know, Erskine is getting called uh, to do that kind of stuff. Or like you know Chuck Burkhoff, old bass player from Sinatra, he does tons of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, there's like a little bit of like mixture here and there because Erskine, I consider Erskine also like a creative musician. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so he does he does a little bit of both, um, but I wouldn't say that a lot of people uh, who who are doing the the recording scene are also doing the creative scene. Yeah. I see I see a couple of people and maybe it's getting also a little bit more but those those two areas are still kind of separate from yeah. each other. Yeah, I suppose it's a sim there's like a similar phenomenon in New York with uh like the Broadway scene, yeah. right? Like yeah, you totally got people different. that will that will play in the Broadway scene and then 
you're never going to see them anywhere else. Yeah. Whereas there's like they could totally be playing, yeah. you know, showing up at sessions and playing yeah. a bunch of stuff. But yeah, I guess that crossover doesn't necessarily um, happen much. Um, there's um, to to speak maybe about specifics of things that you've done and that you're doing. Um, you you mentioned Bob Minzer, um, another really important figure, I guess, is is Dick Oates. Um, like how you've worked with both those guys. Yep. Like um, how did that come about? What's I mean, I've I've played with Dick around here yeah. uh, whenever he's around, and yeah. he does have quite a like uh, quite a close relationship with the Amsterdam scene in a certain way. Yeah. Do you? Is that sort of where it started and then moving to LA, you, yeah. you got more in touch with yeah, him and the, stuff? And the, I remember actually like the first time that I actually got to play with Oates, you were there oh, yeah. as well. <laughs> with uh, uh, That was with Itai and was George Dimitriou also on guitar? Or was possible, it just, yeah. or was it just us two with Itai and Oates? But it I, might I, have the, been, yeah. For, for sure you were there. And uh, that like Itai asked me to do that thing and... Um, yeah, and, and from there I just started really uh, uh, interacting with Oates, you know, like because he's, you know, he's the he plays in the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra and he played with uh, Mel Lewis for for years, and Mel still is like my biggest influence mm-hmm. as a drummer um, and also as a band leader. Um, so yeah, we just I, I kept a really uh, strong relationship with him and. Now, whenever he's in LA, like I try to play with him as much as I can. So, and and it it came about that I have a good relationship with with Mincer as well through school because I met him for the first time yeah. at USC, um, and then uh, all of a sudden I got the opportunity to do a gig under my own name, but with those two guys and yeah. those two. Uh, the first time that we did it, uh, those guys didn't play they ha- they didn't play with each other for like maybe 20 25 years wow yeah that was kind of <laughs> crazy and they yeah. they also they also uh they they like they also uh, there, there was like a huge time in between when they saw each other for the last time so the first time when i i picked oats up and and bob came into the club and you know like it they just you know, started talking to each other and you know Oates' voice. He was like, man, you look so good, man. What are you doing? And, and you know, like it was just like, uh, it was really fun to see that reunion happening and then, yeah. you know, to actually play like, you know, uh, some some pieces from Thad and some pieces from Oates and uh, some pieces from, from Mincer, you know, like to put that all a little bit together. That was, you know, it was... Yeah, awesome to play with those two guys, and I I I learned a shit ton from playing yeah, with those course. two guys. You know, like you, and and every time with with Oates, I still have like a bad feeling every time when I play with Oates because I'm like, I just didn't give enough because that guy is just such a, a you know like such a force when he plays. You know, yeah. no, and absolutely. every every time when I play with him, I'm like. Oh shit! I got my butt kicked. Yeah. <laughs> no, and also like from an educational perspective, I feel like I've I've rarely seen somebody who was that passionate and that like strong in his approach to like teaching jazz specifically jazz yeah. and that aesthetic and that approach and like yeah. bebop and post bebop music. Like he, there's such a sense of fun in in his approach to stuff and and. Uh, yeah, I've always I've always been fascinated by the guy. He's really like 
But he doesn't fool around. He really puts you on your, oh, on yeah, your spot. Oh, yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. Which is refreshing because I feel like there's such a common, like uh, a lot of what goes on in jazz education can be very polite at times. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a sense of like, well, this person has paid their tuition fee, so yeah. uh, I've got to yeah. make, you know, if I see that they're going to be great, then I can push them to be great. But if not, then that's just yeah. fine. And But Oates does not... <laughs> No, does not pull any punches. And, and, and luckily, luckily, I had that same experience also at USC because Erskine is one of the nicest guys. But when you, when I got into his office and uh, got my lessons with him, I got lessons with with him every week, uh, and I can count it on one hand how many times he was uh, absent. You know, like yeah. he's really committed to yeah. teach the students over there. But he he doesn't fool around. Like he kicked my butt like a couple of times in my classes. But it's great because it really makes you think, you know. And then uh, eventually, after those two years, he really changed me as a musician, but also as a person. And yeah. next to, next to him, uh, I should also mention that Andugu Chancellor was, although I uh, had uh, a shorter amount of time with Andugu, but Andugu was also definitely like you know. Even more old school than than Erskine, like he would he would uh, sit me down behind the drum set and he would ask me something and he was like, "All right, all right, you, uh, it's not really good, is it?" <laughs> <laughs> but then you know would give a very you know like a very well argumented and very well um, shaped answer and you know like you know. Uh, uh, a piece of advice on how to solve the problems that yeah. you're dealing with, yeah. you know, like very, uh, um, yeah. How, how should I put it? Like, you know, very well argumented and very, <laughs> and a very strong, also a very, a very strong argument, mm-hmm. but really doesn't screw around. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, and Dugu played f- with everybody from freaking miles to Michael Jackson. Yeah. yeah and yeah. you know, like the amount of knowledge that that guy had also from a producing perspective, like, you know, you really know that this guy has a huge resume, you know, yeah. so you don't fool that around. And yeah, I made no. the mistake of doing that once and I would never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, I'm, uh, I, this is maybe like a more like personal and weird question, but like, uh, have you experienced any culture shock with like movie toilet? You're talking about that. It seems like your long-term perspectives are to like remain based in LA. Yeah. Um, and I think probably moving to LA is, there's probably a certain amount of culture shock, even for people from like other parts of the States. Yeah. Like it's, it's obviously such a specific place, um, let alone coming from, like Europe and and the Netherlands, like yeah. for for one thing, you know the difference between like biking around Amsterdam and dealing with LA traffic has got to be a nightmare. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that is um, definitely something different. Yeah, but it's interesting because I've I've seen so many people like go go to the states from Europe and like find uh, find that you know musically everything is incredibly satisfying and everything, but that then like there are certain aspects to like their actual lifestyle over there that does not really like work for them and yeah. it seems to me like you've adapted really well is the, is that a fair statement yeah um uh i definitely for the first couple of weeks i really had to get used like how everything works over there uh la is huge it's mm-hmm. a huge city 
And uh, originally, I'm from like a very, very small town in the south. So, <laughs> and also, if you look at it, Amsterdam is in, 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 in essence, a big village. Yeah, for sure. So to move out to LA and then, you know, you see downtown LA with all the skyscrapers and you see the Hollywood sound uh, sign and you see the mountains and all of that. And you're like, you're, you know, like, what the hell am I doing here? Um, also the campus, uh, of USC is oh, yeah. huge, mm-hmm. you know, like the first couple of days that I was there and I was walking around and I'm like, is this the university? Like the university itself has 40 to 50,000 students, yeah. the complete university. So that's <clears throat> already like a city, small yeah. city by itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were like a, a couple of things that I, um, that I really had to get used to, like, uh, a couple of like examples that I can just uh, name from the top of my head. Like I really had to be a little bit more um, careful with ma- with the the kind of jokes that I was making because people can be pretty liberal here in yeah. Amsterdam, but that some of that kind of stuff will not work in 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 LA whatsoever. Mm. And LA is actually like a pretty liberal. Yeah, city definitely. because you know like it's super democratic and you know you can be whoever you want to be you can be yeah, lesbian you can be gay you can be straight you can be white you can be black you can be gray you, it doesn't matter in LA so that is actually like a, a nice comparison between LA and Amsterdam but still some of the jokes that I would make like people would say like oh no 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 you can't say that out here yeah so it's funny yeah I, I get that because I I I feel like personally I'm closer to that culture than I am to the culture here in terms of that stuff. Yeah. And I'm always having to remind people, like, guys, that's kind of yeah. crossing the line of what is acceptable yeah. and what is not. I mean, yeah. Not yeah. that we should be like weird uh, political correctness police or whatever, but the, it's it's interesting how, I think especially the Netherlands has that in its culture somehow. Like yeah. that um, directness and and kind of like no not being afraid to offend is... Is something quite yeah uh, quite typical, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I re- like I I would like to think that I I I adapted uh, better to you know that whole uh, that whole deal of you know like being a little bit more uh, being a little bit more patient and a, being a little bit more gracious and being a little uh, a bit more um, you know like less I I wouldn't say less direct because. I'm still basically the same direct, uh, mm-hmm. I would say like Dutch assertive person from yeah. time to time. But now I know better where to do it and where not to do it. Yeah, maybe sure. more importantly. Yeah. Um, another example, because I mean, here, out here, like the internet banking is so easy. Yeah. And in the States, it's just not. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like they, I mean, when I do gigs, I get paid usually in checks and I have to yeah. cash in wow. my checks. Yeah. And That's... you know, like the first time when I got a check, I was like, okay, so how do I cash this in? You know, like yeah, they don't even exist anymore. No, here. out here it's just, you know, like it's completely. No such thing as a yeah. check. Um, cool. Uh, the other, I suppose like maybe the reverse question to this is, is there anything that like your experience of being there for three years has shed a different light on the way you, deal with things when you come back here like i suppose the maybe the uh, i mean the other aspect to that question is 
um, have you felt like the fact that now you're the guy that went to LA means that the scene here has a different viewpoint on you? Are you finding it easier to get gigs? Is there like an... Mm, No, it's it's not easier to find gigs because uh, I've been gone for three years. So people know that I'm there. So people don't call me. Mm -hmm. Um, When I got over here, I just let a bunch of friends know uh, like hey if you have something like you know uh, this this trip uh, is basically a holiday for me like you know spend some time with my family and all that um, but I, I told a couple of uh, uh, good friends of mine like hey I'm gonna be in town so you know if you have like a small little gig wherever or and you need a drummer just you know maybe yeah. think of me um, but uh, no I wouldn't say uh, well, the thing that I would want to say is that I'm trying to really not represent, but, you know, make a little bit of advertising for what is happening in L.A. right now and that people should also take a closer look at that and yeah. not, you know, that not that people are not blind blindly staring at New York all the yeah. time because, and that doesn't, all, that doesn't go for L.A. by itself, but... You know, like Miami has been working on their program for the last year and their faculty is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Orleans has a, a, a really nice scene over there, very active uh, music scene, not just only like jazz, but also like, you know, soul and R&B and all of that stuff. Um, in Michigan, there's also a great school, like, you know, uh, I, I don't know exactly which university it is, but Rodney Whitaker is like, you know, the head yeah. of the faculty over yeah. there and, you know, Etienne Charles is teaching trumpet over there. And, you know, like they're like these small, well, not really small, but they're like these pockets yeah. in, in, in the U S that are really, really good. Yeah, and also sure. Chicago, Chicago is a city that has a very, very cool scene. Yeah. And I know a bunch of people who are from Chicago who are not, well, some of them are still living over there, but some of them are living in LA. And, you know, like you see those guys uh, coming from Chicago and you're like, damn, those guys from Chicago, they can really play, you yeah. know? It's not, to me, it's not just New York anymore. No, for sure. I think like also San Francisco has been a place that yeah. has got a, a big tradition. I guess Austin has got stuff going yeah. on in Texas. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Portland is probably full of cool things. So yeah, it's... It's cool to, to the yeah, it's true when you when you're based here. I think a lot of people don't necessarily look further than that. Um, also, yeah. because you don't because you don't see those people. You know, like they it, it's it's always that typical thing, right? That you will see a poster here for a gig, and it'll be like blah 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 from NYC. You know, and and you're never gonna see, I don't know, like Austin, Texas, yeah. as as, a, as a, like a selling point. Of, yeah. <laughs> you should come check these people out. Yeah, there from there. <clears throat> But so, um, is, yeah, is there anything that you, that you feel like you, you have a different, um, you have a different feeling about the scene here now? Like, is there, is there anything that, that you've learned over there that, that you think, um, gives you a different perspective now? Um, yeah, um, the scene, well, obviously the scene is much uh smaller out here and but that's just because of the fact that la is like so big and it's not oversaturated uh there's like a lot of opportunity you can really develop yourself as the musician that you want to be i think that's still happening here in amsterdam or in holland but 
I do see like, you know, a development that there are less and less stages of musicians to really show their, their music. Uh, And I mean, it's still possible because, you know, like all of the successful guys are still doing it, you know, like Ben van Gelder and Joris Roelofs and I mean yourself as well. And, but I, I, I definitely see that when I see the level of musicians that are going into the conservatory and who are coming out of the conservatory, uh, for those guys, it's really getting tricky, you know, to get gigs and to really start as a, as a musician. I, I'm not saying at all that it's impossible. It's still possible. Yeah, and I think sure. it's going to be possible for, I don't know how many years to come, but I definitely see that, that, um, there's like, you know, there's, uh, it's definitely getting harder out here to, uh, to be a working musician. And I think you have to really be open-minded of, you know, like also playing just uh, not only in Holland, but also go, you know, like outside to Europe yeah, and play in yeah. Belgium, Germany and France. Like I, b- right before I left, I started to work, uh, a little bit in, in, in Belgium uh, by coincidence with a um, w- with a really cool big band, the Bravo Big Band, which uh, Thomas oh, Mayer yeah. is doing. Yeah, yeah, the friends of mine. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, those guys are like super killing. And I didn't know I didn't know shit about the Belgium scene. I knew about Bertjoris and I knew about Dre Palmarts, but then yeah. all of a sudden I There's get to whole... play with the Bravo guys, yeah. and I get to play with uh, Jean Paul on trumpet and, uh, and Stephen. Yeah, yeah, and Stephen Delanois. Yeah, and those guys are killing you know so no, absolutely yeah there is there is all these pockets it's true it's funny that it's just across the border and that we're not necessarily in contact with it but then again i suppose there's a parallel there between you know what we were just saying about people not being aware that there's a scene in in portland or whatever yeah. you know like it's um i think that is that those barriers are hopefully slowly falling and that people are becoming more aware of like the the global nature of stuff but yeah it, it it's still not easy um Maybe we should talk. I mean, we yeah, we've already been talking for a while. But, uh, maybe we should talk specifically about the projects that you're involved with right. now. Besides the big band work, yeah. um, one thing that you and actually that's a, that's what people will have heard already is is you you started this group called the Leho Group. Yeah, uh, L.A. Holland Group. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that? What what are the plans with that? Where did that come from? What? Uh... Um, well, the the plan that I had uh, in my last year of uh, of the masters at USC was that I wanted to bring a band of my LA friends basically over to to Holland and do a tour, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got my my buddies together and. Um, they all said like, yeah, let's do this. And we went in, you know, like we went in very seriously. We recorded uh, demos in a professional studio. um, And then I just started, you know, like sitting behind my laptop for hours and just trying to contact as (laughs) many bookers as I could. And um, we uh, we also applied for a grant from the Netherlands America Foundation who were very generous in giving us some money so I Mm. could afford to fly those guys over because yeah, otherwise I wouldn't know how I would have done it. Yeah. Um, but I, it worked out to uh, bring uh, three of my best buddies basically out to, to Holland and do a little tour with, uh, with Ben van Gelder. Yeah. And um, it, uh, then when we got back, we really decided like, look, this is killing what we're yeah. doing. We're really feeling um, 
uh, connected with each other, but all, uh, personally, but also on a musical level. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we should continue with this band, obviously. Yeah. Um, so we started playing around town in LA. We've for the last half year, I think we we played pretty steadily with like maybe a gig a month. Okay. And um, right before I came back here to Amsterdam, we actually did like a two night residency at the Black Hat in San Francisco, which was really oh, cool. Yeah. That that is a club where you you get in touch with the booker, and if you book it like far enough in advance, you can get like a four or five night residency. Yeah, at, at the end. such a like that, dying thing. Yeah, like, that doesn't only, exist anymore. I only know about the Village Vanguard doing that kind of stuff for yeah. like you know the top. Ronnie Scotts does it a bit. Ronnie Scotts, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, when I go back, we have a gig lined up. Uh, on August 31st at a, a nice jazz bar, new jazz bar in LA. Yeah. And then we have two gigs in October um, and we're planning to make a record. Yeah. yeah. But now, like, I I, I can say that um, I founded that band, but now we all work as, it works as a collective. So mm-hmm. everybody writes for the band, but everybody also does stuff for the band, like the tenor player, Mike, he has his own label, so we're going to be on his label. Okay. Uh, Max and uh, Adam, uh, you know, they also write and they, you know, f- whatever, like, you know, stuff needs to happen, organizing some stuff, you know, like transport or, you know, some stay for uh, San Francisco, for example. Yeah, sure. Uh, like, they, they help with that. And we also have been working as a quintet now instead of a quartet because we added Ido Mishulam, mm-hmm. who is a killing trombone player uh he was in the monk institute a couple of years ago Mm. and i think he's like maybe one of the best maybe the best young trombone player in the world at the Mm. moment because the guy is completely ridiculous on the instrument so we've been working with him and he's bringing in charts uh also as well so we are definitely trying now to really play on a regular basis and have uh and record a record in a year, yeah. basically. Okay. Do you want to, like, real quick, I realize you that we didn't get around to doing this, but do you want to mention, like, the full names of all the guys that are in the band and, like, yeah. uh, all that? Uh, so you, we have uh, Ido Meshulam on trombone, yeah. uh, Mike Lebrun on tenor sax. Uh, Ido didn't go on our tour uh, to Holland because he wasn't in the band yet. Yeah, sure. Uh, Adam Hirsch on piano, and Max Krauss on bass, and yeah. myself on drums. Yeah. Cool. Um. Yeah, um, is there any other stuff that you want to talk about? I know that there's a there's a group, uh, you've been doing a bunch of Sidemen work as well, I guess. Like, is there some Sidemen stuff that you want to talk about? Um, yeah, well, I've been playing very regularly with a vibraphone player in LA. Uh, his name is Nick Mancini, and he's also one of my best friends uh, mm-hmm. now, uh, even though he is 45 and I'm 26. But <laughs> it's he, often the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he's... He's one of the most ridiculous musicians that I've I've uh, come across in uh, in LA, and we also have like a very strong personal connection. And you know, uh, sometimes it can be hard to be like away from your family for you know long a longer period of time, and that mm. they're also so far away. So Nick is really somebody who can who I can go to if you know like if I have to talk with somebody, yeah. for example. But he's also a killing musician, and um, we're actually we actually put uh, put together a tour, uh, European tour, uh, for October, the beginning of October, and we're going to be 
playing at the Bim House here in Amsterdam. Uh, a couple of other venues in 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 Holland. Uh, yeah. We're also doing Finland. We're doing Austria. And he just texted me this morning that he now has a entry to play at Ronnie Scott's. Okay. So nice. the, hopefully there's uh, there's going to be something happening in uh, in London as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's really a guy who I've been working with for like or making music with. I would I would rather say for the last seriously for the last year. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, for the last year. Yeah, yeah. yeah him, him, and and Steve Haas, who's a a, a great drummer who worked with everybody. Uh, they have like a regular gig at uh, uh, at the Brack Shop Tavern in downtown LA on every Thursday, mm-hmm. and I I knew about this place, and Nick invited me, and I started to uh, visit that place like almost every Thursday, and now still, if I'm not playing on a Thursday, I'll go there. Yeah. And I learned a shit ton from Nick and from yeah. Steve, like, you know, and they're now, they're now my, uh, my homies basically. And <laughs> like, I have a spot with, uh, uh, in, in, in Steve's studio where I can practice, you know? So yeah. we, 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 we got really close in like a very short amount of time, you know, and like also musically it really gels really well. So, yeah. And so, yeah, his, I feel very fortunate to work with a guy like that who's like, you know, very, uh, very good and maybe one of the best vibe play- vibes players in, in, in the States who's yeah. very serious also uh, about his craft but is also incredibly funny. You know, <laughs> like he's, he's he, I, I would say like my assertive Dutch sense of humor gels really well with his assertive uh, assertive NY humor okay, because he's yeah. originally from New York. So yeah. he would say something, you know, that is completely, you know, I don't know where he, he gets it from and we're all like, you know, laughing our guts out, you know. So yeah, I uh, I, I really enjoy working with that guy. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, I, I look forward to, I hope I can catch the gig in October. Um, maybe I should talk to I should get in touch with you again, see if I could get Nick to to do the show at some point. Yeah. Um, while you guys are around. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, we, I guess we're reaching the end of this conversation. I always, uh, the thing that I always like to do is ask my guests uh, if there's something that they would like to recommend that the audience check out, something that they have found particularly inspiring lately. It can be just about anything. So yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's... Yeah, um... I uh, I've been reading uh, Effortless Mastery for the first time because I started I I haven't finished the book yet, yeah. uh, but I started reading that book. I'm I'm really taking my time with the book because it's really you know like it's uh, intense material for me um, because I started reading that book when I had a lot of doubts about myself as a person. Like, am I doing it uh, right? And also as a musician, like, am I playing okay is mm-hmm. my playing good yeah because um, you know like uh, you can really get stuck into this feeling like all all of my friends are doing like this this cool stuff and I'm sitting in my practice spot mm-hmm. not doing anything um, or not gigging yeah um, and that book really opened my eyes just with saying that you are not alone in this feeling because yeah. almost every musician goes through doubts and fears yeah and uh and you know like the way how uh Kenny Werner describes that from his own perspective and just also basically says like Keith Jarrett has fears and anxieties 
There's yeah. no, there's no uh, doubt in my mind that he doesn't have any doubts whatsoever. That's a complete bogus yeah, lie. Yeah. You know, like already that, that uh, being conscious of that, that I'm not the only one. Yeah. Is uh, is something that really, uh, yeah, it, it just took a load off my shoulder. And like the book really helped me to put things in perspective and also really um, change the way how I'm listening to live music, how I'm listening to uh, music from like a record or whatever. Uh, and in general, I also think that I've become like a more positive person person because of the book and mm. also really actively try to when you're in a situation that not everything is going like you know uh, that not everything is going uh, according to plan that you still stay positive and that you still um quote unquote bring your light to the situation yeah you know that's something that i i i caught myself like oh i've I've, I've been acting a little bit like an asshole basically. And you know, that you're, that I'm really conscious of the fact like, okay, I should just stay positive, but also show my positive my positivity sincerely to, you know, yeah. not that I'm going like, yeah, everything is all right. And man, you play great and all that, like all that, that showbiz <laughs> kind of stuff. I I feel like that's part of the point of the book. First of all, it's kind of funny because you're the second person to uh, in, what is it, 22, 23 episodes now to recommend that book specifically. Yeah. So it obviously does strike a chord, especially with, with jazz musicians. It sort of has this, it's like the self-help book for jazz musicians kind yeah. of in a way. Yeah. Um, but you don't have I, to go I, into therapy. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's that's kind of part of the point of the book. And I think that's why it's it's quite an important book for... Uh, for jazz musicians uh, or at least it's because it's wrapped in like the idea of this is a way to approach improvising and playing jazz music it's actually like giving you some of the typical kind of self-help uh, like ideas yeah um, I think in the jazz community there's so much posturing going on and there's so much of like what you just said like the idea of um, yeah man you know you play great we should do a session sometime all that yeah. kind of nonsense you know that uh, it sometimes it's nonsense sometimes it's real but there's definitely a sense of uh, you know like having to maintain an outward appearance and a certain amount of you know um, I guess in Dutch you might say yeah. Uh, like yeah you have to keep things cool you have to be nice to each other even if like you would stab each other in the back afterwards or whatever yeah, and, and right. that's that's something that can become really heavy I think um, so it, it's, it is interesting to me that like, that is the, that is a, that is a thing that's out there now for yeah. jazz musicians. Like the understanding of like, yeah, like sincere, positive yeah. approach and you don't need to pretend that, you know, you're this perfect, like also because there is definitely a certain amount of macho culture in yeah. jazz music. So like yeah. that, that's also why it's, it's nice that, someone like Kenny Werner comes out and says, hey, vulnerability is the thing yeah. and it's acceptable and it's it's helpful and um, let's stop pretending, it, you know. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's not easy to stay positive, but, you know, you it, it, it'll... It'll bring you like you know it'll it it it'll bring you the furthest because you know like short example, uh, Joe Labar I had I had a couple of private lessons with Joe LaBarbera, the last yeah. drummer of Bill Evans yeah yeah and that guy to me is like the role model of 
being positive. That mm. guy, whenever, and then also sincere. Like every time when I, I try to go to, to his gigs and I've been to his place a couple of times and just every time that guy is such a positive force and he also radiates it. And also from the drums, because his drumming is ridiculous. He's an amazing drummer. But also when I said, uh, when I see him, you know, like when he leads his own group, you see just this very positive, humble man who just really loves to play jazz music and and drums. Yeah. And he is basically my role model for that kind of stuff. Like you really can be very positive and genuine in a sincere way and not showing anything off because the playing will do that for you. The playing yeah. will show other people what you're able to do. Like you don't have to do that with words. And I, I had a little talk with La Barbara about that. And he said like, man, if you just find, if you find yourself in a, in a gig situation that, you know, is not really happening, keep your positivity and keep it also to yourself and uh, bring your positive, uh, positivity to the gig. Because if you don't do that stuff, it will also radiate in, uh, onto the other musicians, you know, and you'll yeah. make things worse. Yeah, and things basically. just spiral from there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just pure logical sense. But when you think about it consciously, you know, and when you start to dig a little bit in your, in your memory, like, oh, yeah, I maybe should have been a little bit more positive in that situation, <laughs> you know. So it, it, to me, it really, uh, it, 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 it became really more important yeah. to me to really be, you know, like, you know, genuine in my feelings, like screw it. If, you know, if I'm not feeling good, then people can know about it. Like, yeah, I'm not having a good day, but then, you know, in the end, when you're sitting or when you're playing your instrument, then, you know, like you get to do what you, what, what you love to do and you get paid for it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I think, I, yeah, I think that's a good, uh, good place to, uh, to leave this. Uh, Kevin, uh, Thanks so much for being on the show. You're very welcome. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, if and when you've got more stuff to talk about and more projects and more things, uh, please come back. Yeah, will do. Kevin Van Elzen, there'll be links to his website in the show notes at soundofmoment.com and you can find any upcoming tour dates as well as links to purchase his music over there. I'd like to thank my fellow members of Catrio for providing intro and outro music. The show has a Patreon campaign that is open for donations. Uh, if you feel like helping me out with keeping the show running, paying for all the monthly costs that are involved, then please go to patreon.com slash soundthemoment or just follow the links that are at soundthemoment.com. If you have any feedback, please contact me either via Twitter at Pat Cleaver or the Sound Moment page on Facebook or email me at pat at soundthemoment.com. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts. That could be the iTunes Store, Podbean, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this right now. Leave a favorable rating review while you're there. Tell a friend if you know anybody who might be interested. All of those things are really greatly appreciated and help me out a lot. Let's end the show with more music from Kevin Van Elzen. This is another live recording, this time with his Dutch concert big band at the Gachter Festival in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago. 
The piece is by Vince Mendoza. It's called Hero with a Thousand Faces, and it features soloists Dirk Heimer on guitar and Raoul Driessen on saxophone. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment.
Yeah.